Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. <laughs> and we're also here with Dan. Good morning, Dan. Morning, Bill and Steve. <laughs> and we are going to dispense with our usual introduction because this is part two of our Snowy Owl episode. I haven't come up with a clever title just yet. Yeah. So <laughs> I would highly recommend going back and listening to part one, which we recorded at the Erie Basin Arena. But what we decided to do for part two is leave the windswept shoreline <laughs> and come over to Tift Nature Preserve. This is an urban nature preserve right on the outskirts of Buffalo, dominated by invasive species. <laughs> <laughs> but And cottonwood. And cottonwood. <laughs> but it is an island of nature in an urban setting right along Lake Erie. So it is a great place to come for birds, especially during migration time. Right, guys? Yep. Yeah. Right. And Dan, you were saying that this is a spot where the snowy owls do come when they are in the area, right? Yes, I've seen some sightings on Ebert Tuna. I've actually witnessed it firsthand. When they're at the harbor, it's, it was almost like you could set a watch to it. As soon as the sun would start to set, they would fly over to the light post and then fly over to Tift. And some other photographers out in the field mentioned that they're in the mounds hunting the mammals over here. But whether or not that's true, they do come here for sure. So, would, they wouldn't enter the woods though, right? No, I heard they're hunting the mounds, like okay. the more open area. Yeah. Right, where um, you see the deer sometimes. Yes. yes. For, for, uh, for our few listeners actually in Buffalo and familiar <laughs> with Tiff. <laughs> it is a, yeah. a definitely a good spot to see deer here. Right? <laughs> they're pretty much like cows. Uh, they'll like, walk right up to you practically. Uh, yeah. All right, so in the first part of this two-part episode, we talked about kind of the background of snowy owls gave you an idea of their habitat, their conservation status, all that good stuff. And what we're gonna do for this part is get into the mystery of snowy owl eruptions. Like what is behind these large migrations to areas where you normally wouldn't see snowy owls during the winter time. But before we get into that, we did wanna to talk to Dan a little bit. He was telling us in between the two parts about some different snowy owl behaviors. So I'm gonna turn it over to Dan to talk about this. Yeah, so um, when I was doing my research, I was kind of just looking at the behavior of snowy owls and what they like to do. And I know we discussed hunting and the hunting methods, but uh, what was interesting was that I came across this behavior that Hang was- on. You were talking about how snowy owls hunt. Yes. Not how people hunt snowy owls. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't want our listeners to- <laughs> uh, Yes. Yeah. Okay. How snowy owls hunt. Well, there's another kind of activities, kind of for lack of a better word, that they like to do and it's called loafing and it consists of mainly um either they're half asleep or they're preening or they're just kind of hanging around is this a scientific term loafing? <laughs> in every in every article i came across loafing was the term that they i love used. it right yeah so i can this is this is like a human behavior too yeah right? it's great but it's just so funny because this loafing period consists of them basically doing nothing except maybe yeah. preening and it's so funny because 99% of the time I'm viewing snowy owls, even if I sit there for like three or four hours, they're just sitting there. They're not, you know, you, you wanna photograph them when they're acting the most natural. You don't wanna influence their behavior at all, but you would like them to fly or hunt or something <laughs> to see. And only one time have I ever seen a snowy owl actually hunt out of all the wow, ones I've seen. Wow. And it was the one I, I mentioned on the earlier podcast. So how many times would you say, rough, I know it's hard to say for sure. How many times have you gone out to photograph a snowy owl? How many times have I gone out? Like, and you know, seen a snowy owl. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've probably seen maybe about like 30 of them okay. in my life, 30, 40, and just the one really wasn't loafing. <laughs> it was hunting, that, that's about it. And I think that's because I initially read that they're diurnal, and we discussed that, that that's not true, it, mm -hmm. it varies. 
And so I figured it didn't really matter what time of day I go out and I'd go out when there's best lighting for photography. And I think that's their, you know, the mid afternoon is like their prime loafing hours. <laughs> so I think I just went out during the wrong time. So the, the two types of behavior that you mostly observe are you try to go for the hunting behavior where you can see them hunting the, the various waterfall species at the harbor that we talked about, but mostly it's just loafing. But when they do hunt, I've heard some pretty funny stories because duck hunting is a pretty big thing around the harbor. And I've actually heard of them taking decoys and taking uh, ducks that have recently been killed. So like kleptoparasitism to humans, which is nice. <laughs> which is funny because we know that is that is a big thing in the raptor world. Sure. And when I did research kind of the social behavior of snowy owls, while they can be territorial, sometimes they don't really mind if they're near each other. Okay. And they will, you know, exhibit kleptoparasitism and steal each other's food. But <laughs> it is funny to hear about, you know, hunters losing their, their duck kill to snowy owls. And right. For an animal that's very heavy and really has to focus on its energy return on investment, taking an animal that was just killed just makes perfect sense. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes perfect sense. There's no morality in the natural world, right? <laughs> and um, I've also heard of really cool interactions with them and other raptors like peregrine falcons down here. Notable documented sightings of a peregrine falcon trying to take the kill from a snowy owl or just dive bombing at the snowy owl. So wow. a lot of times that's the kind of stuff you look for, but 90% of the time they're loafing. <laughs> they're <laughs> At just, least when I see them. They're <laughs> just sitting there. Now they're usually on the ground or they're usually... A lot of times they're on the ground, but other times they'll be on not a super high perch, like maybe a pylon or a pole. They will be on telephone poles sometimes, but from what I've noticed, not for super long. And one study that I came across suggested that perch height was a huge factor in their thermal regulation. So that's why they don't want to be super high. They're more exposed oh, to the elements. Okay. Right. Right. Think, yeah, they're sense. saying wind speed and perch height were two very important factors. Yeah. And you know, being on the marina where it's super, super windy, it would probably be very cold if you're standing up on a higher perch being blasted by that wind right. all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's why they tend to be down low. You know, on the ground. Yeah, and that's what makes yeah. them so hard to find sometimes is when they're in the snow. <laughs> so one thing that, that we mentioned briefly off mic was that when snowy owls show up in strange places, because of an eruption happening or maybe they're, they're at a wintering site, this is obviously going to attract people. This is a, a charismatic bird. So I was writing a piece on snowy owls and I said very often these owls show up and photographers and birders will come from far and wide to snarl up traffic, trespass and harass these birds, right? <laughs> yes, uh -huh. that is correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't know what an eruption is, it's like a mastier, but for birds. <laughs> a what? <laughs> right? Yeah. What did you say? I said a mastier. Like oh, for plants. Yes! A mast year, yes. Mast, even less familiar than eruption. <laughs> so mast is when you have a huge year of, uh, of nuts, usually. J just think of like a, a year where there's tons of acorns. That's yes. the most obvious ones because people are just stepping all over them. I like that though. Yeah, yeah that is good. All right, so I know, Dan, this is something that's super important to you. So let the listeners know, like, what's, what's going on here? What is, why is this worth talking about? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting that a lot of people just seem to be interested in owls. It's not just exclusive to the snowy owl. If there's a great horned owl nearby or a screech owl sighting on Ebert, people will flock to it. They can either see or photograph the owl, but it's like that times 10 with a, a rare visitor like the snowy owl. Mm -hmm. And especially for a bird that has made such a treacherous journey to get here and a bird that's very heavy uh, due to all the insulation that we talked about, when you stress them out with 
just your presence or your actions, it does take a, a greater toll on its health than other subjects that you might photograph. So that's why ethics are a huge deal when you're talking about photography and photographing owls. And as I mentioned earlier, you want to photograph the subject, no matter what kind of animal it is, acting naturally, how it would behave if you weren't there at all. You're not gonna and, dress it up. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, it. I've seen people throwing things at the owls to try what? and get a flight shot, yes. Or, um, the, you know, baiting, especially with great gray owls, baiting is a, is a big thing. You bring mice so that you can get them coming in and oh, give a shot, and that brings them closer to people and roadways. And owls that are low flyers are very susceptible to vehicular collisions. A lot of the owls uh -huh. I've worked with, with uh, like wild spirit education, um, are with vehicular rehabbers. strikes. Yeah, yeah, rehabbers. They don't look both ways. <laughs> yeah, they fly low, they go across the road. So, and not only that, even if you are ethical about it, sometimes there's just so many people that are crying. I mean, I've seen groups of at least 20 people photographing one snowy owl at the harbor. But what I must say is good about the snowy owl is the fact that they like to hang out in these open fields or often on maybe something out in the middle of a, like a bay or the harbor where you can't really get to them even if you wanted to. Sure. Now, when they're in their terrestrial environments like fields or farmlands, that's when you get trespassing issues and, and other things as people try to remain close. But if you keep your distance, view them respectfully, that eliminates a lot of those issues that we just talked about. So if you're gonna go see an owl, be aware, be respectful, keep your distance. If there's too many people, maybe come back at a time when there's yes. not gonna be a lot of people. And it is important to note the behavior of the owl. If the owl's constantly looking at you and looking alert, uh, clearly you're bothering it. If it's just loafing around and preening and, you know, doing its own thing, not influenced by your activity, you can tell that you're not bothering the owl. So it's important to kind of understand the behavior of the target too, to make sure you know when you might be doing a little bit too much. You might be too close or there for too long. And, and for the listeners who might be thinking, you know, gee, what's the big deal? Don't we want people to go see these birds? It's, it's not so cut and dry. That owl that just showed up in Central Park one of the articles I read last night said that, you know, the person who found it, they took some criticisms for publicizing the location. And when asked about it, that person said, look, if we want people to love nature, we need to let them know where it is and, and how they can find it. And yes, that's true. But you were getting tons of people going down there. Yes. You can love nature to death. Yeah. So it's not always so cut and dry. We don't want to be just a wet blanket. And I'm really glad you brought that up because especially for individuals like ourselves where we, we teach about nature, we want to show people these things. Right. So I'm so tempted to, when I you know see an owl, talk about its location and teach about it, but sometimes it's best to keep them, uh, keep those sites under wraps if they're in an area where they're vulnerable. If they're out on the break wall at the harbor, you know, hundreds of yards away yeah. from where you can see them. No one's getting it out It doesn't there. really matter how many people are there, but. A place like Central Park that, that might have helped a little bit keeping a secret, but like you said, it's yeah. a tough call. Yeah, yeah, we all of us here, we know Tom Kerr, you know, the naturalist with Buffalo Audubon. He's been on the podcast before. Uh -huh. He runs the local, one of the local Facebook birding pages. And as far as I know, they don't even post owl locations. I, I do believe that that's yeah. against the rules. Yeah, you're not, right. not even, even if you don't even keep the location, I, I think you're not even allowed to post a photo at all. Oh, so he just, I think that's right. Pictures yeah. of owls, yeah. he just keeps them off of there. So I yep. believe uh, I know somebody who posted an owl photo on there and it got removed. <laughs> like, it didn't list location or anything. 
And I respect that. I yeah. respect that decision, especially with sensitive species like owls. And this isn't really the case for snowy owls, but the owls around here that are chiefly nocturnal, the daytime is when they need to sleep, when right. they need to roost. And when you're Not bothering them and taking photos, I'm like, how would you like it if at two in the morning people came <laughs> knocking on your door and you take waking you up all the time? Like, that's what it's like. So, right. so I, I like that, that rule on that page for yeah, sure. And yeah, and I can definitely sympathize with the people that get frustrated by those rules, but I think the more you learn about the owls, the more you're going to care about those owls and the more you're going to understand those rules. Correct. That those rules are there for the owl's benefit. All right. Yeah, I always kind of bring it back to this just because I'm obsessed with always making a plant analogy. But sometimes <laughs> I think like bothering these owls and sometimes even like putting their life in danger by having like groups of people searching for them and throwing mice at them or rocks <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. It almost feels like poaching orchids to me. I know that feels like a very different thing because one you're taking it out of nature and, sure. and likely killing it but sometimes it has you know it still has that negative impact well, sure. you know so because uh, you're you're putting human wants or desires ahead right. of a healthy environment if you i know, can't poach orchids you could have how am i supposed to enjoy them <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. i can go bother the owls and throw rocks at them how am i supposed to enjoy it how am I gonna get that shot, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. See, that, that's the problem. When, especially when you when you significantly get into photography, you know, you're and you're looking for that best shot or that best angle. What comes first is the the safety and well-being of the target, no matter what it is. Ideally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally, that's what you try to go for. It, it's like that, just multiplied with snowy owls because sure. of they're, they're heavy in that journey that they made. That's a significant journey for such a heavy bird, right? Yeah. All right, so hopefully our, our listeners feel better informed now. And what we're gonna jump to now is eruptions. So as we mentioned in part one, these are these irregular uh, invasions, you can say, of species into areas they don't normally go. And we should say this doesn't just happen with snowy owls. This can happen with other species of birds, mammals. So. It can happen in other areas of the natural world, but obviously we're gonna focus on snowy owls today. But I do wanna take a step back to talk about two different types of migration. And Steve's gonna explain the difference between obligate migrants and facultative migrants. Got it. Because, and I have not prepped Steve for this, but I know he's smart enough to be able to BS his way through it. Right, <laughs> I mean, I could do it really simply, I guess maybe yeah. even too simply, but obligate, just means it's something that essentially has to be done and facultative means you can kind of take it or leave it you don't necessarily need to do whatever it is right and you're right so obligate migrants think of say typically bluebirds it's probably a better species i could pick but that's the first one that pops in my mind mm -hmm. most of them it's kind of hardwired genetically that they're going to migrate uh, that's typically what most bluebirds are going to do from our area yeah. But facultative migrants. I think a robin, right? Robins sometimes do lateral, or sometimes they've even stuck around, right? Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Some sometimes we get bluebirds sticking around too. We got yeah. them on our Christmas bird count. Crows. Um, but what a, no. <laughs> Crows never. Mind. I got it. Do they warblers. Migrate? Okay. Warblers. warblers. There yeah, you go. Warblers. Okay. <laughs> You're not going to find a yellow warbler. <laughs> no, I've never heard of a warbler sticking around. No. No. So facultative migrants, they're more flexible, as you said. They could be responding to say environmental factors and these can fluctuate wildly between years. It could be like weather, food availability. It may cause them to migrate or stay depending on what the conditions are. So eruptions, or you might hear them called invasions, are a form of this facultative migration. 
they can be extreme and, and often spectacular, these unusual and huge movements of individuals to an area. And as we've just been talking about, they can sometimes attract a lot of public attention. And during these eruptive migrations, the movements can be very variable. Sometimes you'll get a lot of them, sometimes you won't get very many. So the numbers are variable. The distance traveled, where you find them, the duration, these things all can fluctuate. And it could be in response to food supply, which you're gonna find as we talk about. Now, in birds, this kind of migration, eruptive, eruptive migration, it's common in two groups of birds. We have boreal seed-eating birds, which we're gonna talk a little, a little bit about, and then several species of raptors, like snowy owl. So seed eaters, they typically specialize on a limited or a single food plant. And these often include mast fruiting species. Okay. Which is great that you just mentioned. <laughs> mast fruiting species like coniferous trees. Mast fruiting trees. They're the lemmings of the tree. <laughs> there you go. So an example would be the common red pole. It feeds primarily on birch and alder seeds. And then you also have red or white winged crossbills. I do want to just mention this now that you bring it up. This yeah. winter was considered an eruptive season for uh, both the crossbills and the red poles. Oh, oh yeah. cool. So I saw my, my first red pole ever and first crossbill this year. Nice. They, they've been around. They've been at Rheinstein and other places this year. Steve uh -huh. and I did the Christmas bird count and we got a flock of 50 red poles yeah. in yeah. the field. Yeah. All right. So these guys, the crossbills, they specialize on conifer seeds. And it's been suggested that for these species, the eruptions are related to a periodic failure in the seed crop of their preferred food. So the food that they like best bottoms out, they gotta leave and just search for food wherever they can get it. So that idea, that's behind one of the two main hypotheses used to explain winter eruptions. So to restate that first one, widespread failure of the seed crop on the northern breeding ground forces individuals to move overwhelmingly to southern areas in the winter. So we're gonna call this the lack of food hypothesis. Okay, so they have to travel to find more food. Correct. Yeah. Now the second hypothesis is that it's a good seed crop that leads to high survival and high reproductive success, and this results in an unusually large number of first-year birds forced to move south in winter. So this is called the breeding success hypothesis. So during the breeding season, there's so much food that reproduction is so successful that they have to fly south and then they end up going into areas they normally wouldn't go to because there's so many first year birds looking for a place to winter. Got it. And so, so this second hypothesis is much more of like a territory thing where they're being pushed further south by other birds? Yes, it's you know based on resources. They're trying to find wintering grounds and since there's so many more birds, where they typically winter, it's almost like all the spots are full. Right. So these birds end up going to places they normally wouldn't go to. And I do want to highlight that this hypothesis, it puts forth the idea that if this hypothesis were to hold true, that means these birds that are erupting into areas you're normally not found, they're going to be young birds, inexperienced, typically first year birds. Got it. And I saw you shaking your head, Dan. <laughs> Is that what you came across too? Yeah. So, results from a 2001 study for several species of seed eaters suggested a combination of both hypotheses because eruptions were often best explained by a large seed crop resulting in high population densities because of that great breeding success, followed by a poor seed crop the following year 
but there were some species-specific differences. Now, that's seed eaters. We're talking about owls, specifically snowy owls, right? Mm -hmm. But with owls, these two hypotheses do apply. So, there's several species of owls that feed primarily on small mammals. And these small mammals, they show these large cyclic fluctuations that we keep talking about, especially in northern areas. Species like the great gray owl, the boreal owl, and especially snowy owls, they exhibit eruptive migration during winter, sometimes with a regularity that's similar to the reproductive peaks of those small mammals. Okay? Right. You can almost mirror each other. So this has been noticed even as far back as 1945. So I don't want people to think that the breeding success hypothesis and how it applies might apply to snowy owls is a new idea. And in fact, winter eruptions of some boreal owl species, like the great gray owl, coincide with periods of low densities of small mammals from the previous summer. Now this would suggest that great gray owl eruptions might be a better explained by the lack of food hypothesis. <laughs> so I know I'm probably confusing you a little bit here, jumping back and forth, but don't worry, trust us, it'll all become clear. I'm just kind of setting things up. <laughs> so I'm gonna, as we move along, I'm gonna tighten that focus knob a little more. Okay. So let's talk about snowy owls. In recent years, the satellite tracking, it's allowed us to learn that many snowy owls, and as we mentioned in part one, do remain in the Arctic tundra during winter, no matter what the lemming abundance was the previous summer. Keep in mind that snowy owl migration, even during non-eruptive years, is complex. Some birds do migrate south predictably, but others remain on the breeding grounds or move north onto the Arctic sea ice. And these guys are hunting in that perpetual winter darkness. So eruptions happen on average every four to five years, but once or twice in a lifetime, what we call a mega eruption occurs <laughs> when snowy owls show up much farther south and in much bigger numbers than usual. And I think I already mentioned that the winter of 2013-14 was one of these extraordinary events. It was the largest eruption in the Northeast and Great Lake regions in maybe a century, and snowy owls were reported as far south as Florida and Bermuda. And then in 1415, the next year, another sizable eruption occurred in the Great Lakes in the east and farther west than the previous years. Um, and they think that that happened mostly because those first year owls that erupted the year before still like weren't sure of where to go. Like, where do we normally go during the winter time? <laughs> so they ended up in these strange places. All right, so which hypothesis better explains what's happening with snowy owls? So we're going to look at two specific studies. One is from 2016, and this is called Pulsed Resources at Chandra Breeding Sites Affect Winter Eruptions at Temperate Latitudes. Oh, Steve has found something. Are these little columbulas? They, I just saw some bounce away. Oh, are these snow fleas? Yeah, I think so. Ah. I've been seeing them all over the path. Oh yeah, that one just like jumped. Oh yeah, <laughs> they, they just, th th that's what they're called springtails, they kind of have this thing under their body kind of held there and it'll just kind of release and it'll flick them off in a direction. That's oh, so yeah. cool. I've never, I've heard of springtails. I've never actually oh, really? seen this. Yeah. This is a first for me. So it, folks, it just looks like pepper. Uh, yeah. Like pepper. <laughs> Someone peppered the snow pepper everywhere though. The snow. Yep. But I mean, they're kind of like these elongated little invertebrates and every now and then they'll just bounce, you know, like fling themselves. And most people walking along, they wouldn't notice these as an organism. It would just look like dirt. Like yeah. Scattered dirt or something. But they're everywhere. The the path yeah. the whole time has been littered with them. So I didn't hear anything Bill was saying. 
because I just couldn't stop looking at the string tails on the ground. <laughs> That's nothing new. But if you, when you look at them, if you look at a scattering of them long enough, like one or two of them, will, it looks like it disappears. Oh, yeah. But they're just bouncing. Wow. Yeah, they move so fast. So we'll put a link to more info on these guys in the episode notes. And uh, that one year where we didn't put many podcasts out for about six months yeah. uh, in 2017, this is part of what I was doing. I was uh, identifying things like springtails underneath a microscope. Oh. Yeah, that was a big part of my job. There was like a big botany and then a big entomology part of the job. Was so. this with the fish stuff? No. This wow. was in the Prairie Research Institute. Oh, when you were in Illinois. Yeah. All right. So I was just about to talk about this 2016 study. And Dan, this uses that word pulsed. So those are the resources, whether animal or plant, that the abundance and scarcity comes in waves. Yes. Right? So lemmings, which we've been talking a lot about, their populations fluctuate, so we call them a pulsed resource. Now, one thing that showed up in the abstract of the article, it says, studying eruptive migration is challenging due to the continental scale of this phenomenon. Because when snowy owls erupt, this is happening over broad areas. So it can be hard for researchers to kind of get a handle on it. So what did these guys use? And Steve, you're gonna like this. They combined, for the first time, continental scale data from the Christmas bird count. Oh, cool. With field data of annual fluctuations of small mammal, mammals at two distant sites in the Canadian Arctic to <laughs> test these two hypotheses. So let's talk, for people that don't know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, but what is the Christmas bird count? It's, who's, did Audubon start it? Or? No, so it was started by Frank Chapman. Oh, right, Frank Chapman. So it's basically like once a year, there's a day that everyone goes out right around Christmas. Right. And they just count the species of birds and also the number of each of those species that they're seeing as well. So sometimes we'll have like, oh, we saw 50 chickadees and and right. and 100 crows and 30 geese, yeah. So Frank Chapman did start this, I think in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but Audubon eventually took it over, the mm. Audubon Society. So now for the two weeks before, and I think the two weeks after Christmas every year, anyone can sign up to take part in a Christmas bird count. There's probably one in your area, folks. And here's a deer walking right down the middle of the path towards <laughs> right, <us. laughs> right towards us. And you know, we do have an episode about the Christmas bird count yes. where we take you with us on the count. We give some little bits of info here and there. Why does it keep coming towards <laughs> us? Who's feeding you? <laughs> this, this deer is probably what, 20 feet away? Yeah, feet and, away? and it, it just keeps getting closer and closer. Yeah. I mean, I guess we're the ones getting closer. Oh, oh, oh. So oh. we're like 10 feet away from this deer and it finally decided, all right. With the, and not really in any hurry. No, yeah. just kind of casually walks away. Uh, oh, we should look for ticks. <laughs> uh, oh, on the deer, you're serious. Do you do you think so? It might be. I don't know if I see any actually. Because you could still find them in the winter. This deer is complete, seems completely unperturbed that we're here. I think it would be more obvious if they were on there. I think so. Because when they're engorged, you can really see them. Yeah. And she looks pretty healthy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so to get back to the Christmas count, everywhere where one is happening, the organizers pick a, a central spot, and then there's a 15-mile diameter circle around that spot, and then they send out teams to count the birds just as you were talking about. Yeah. And this and, has been going on for over 100 years. And I'm always stuck on your team for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we can change it. <laughs> Dan, have you done a Christmas count before? Um, I've done... Probably not this big one. We've done like smaller Christmas bird count events at like Ryan Sand Woods, okay. but I don't think I've ever participated in 
this large guy. All right, well, next year we'll, we'll invite we'll you. For sure. Yeah, we have to. We'll get on our Christmas count team. <laughs> um, so this data is out there. And even though it's been compiled by mostly amateurs, uh, researchers can still use it and find lots of good information from that data. So these guys looked at data from 1994 to 2011. There were 2,300 circles included in the Christmas count database. So this is all across North America. And what they did is they broke it down. They looked at ones that have reported at least one snowy owl observation during that time. There were 616. They wanted to evaluate the influence that small mammal abundance has on winter eruptions of owls and they wanted to reduce the noise resulting from anecdotal observations. So they only selected sites that showed eruptive patterns. At least three years with three or more owl observations recorded at the site during that 1994 to 2011. So they eliminated sites where the presence of owls was only accidental and which were unlikely to show eruptive patterns because they were trying to study just eruptions. So they found 84 sites so it may not sound like a lot, but within those 84 sites, there were 1,298 counts that took place. Oh, wow. Okay, because remember, there's multiple teams in the count circles. Right. The sites were concentrated in southern Canada and the northern U.S., and they spanned the whole continent from east to west. Now, one thing that jumped out at me is it was strange that if you take part in a Christmas count, the leader of your team, he has to keep track of the effort, how many miles the team goes, mm -hmm. how many hours they put forth. And what they found is that increased observation effort didn't lead to higher owl counts. So if you were trying harder to find owls, it didn't matter. And they think, I mean, they didn't know for sure, obviously, but they figured that since owl, snowy owls are large and conspicuous and found in open habitats, people know that they're there. Right. A snowy owl shows up in a count circle, someone's gonna know ahead of time that it's there. It's very rare that you're just gonna stumble upon a snowy owl that <laughs> someone hasn't already found yes. right yeah it, it kind of makes sense because i feel like i could imagine other birds their numbers going up right but with the owl it's like you either you're going to see it or you're not going to right. see it right away or it's not there yeah right the they're out in the open they're pretty easy to spot yeah, so yeah very hard to misidentify it's possible <laughs> at all to misidentify <laughs> right. not. so as far as the small mammals they were collected during the summer over the same period at two different sites so these lemmings were collected from 1994 to 2011. One was on Bylot Island in Nunavut, that's in the Eastern High Arctic, and then Daring Lake in the Northwest Territories, that's considered the Central Low Arctic. So what did they find? They found that winter owl abundance was positively related to prey ab abundance during the previous summer at both sites, and it tended to decrease from Western to Eastern temperate North America. So their results did show a positive relationship between summer food resources and winter abundance of owls. And they said, well, this supports the breeding success hypothesis. Right, so that was hypothesis number two. That's one study. Now here's another that takes it one step further. This was 2019, so just a couple years ago. Now this study said that previous studies have looked at juvenile, non-juvenile ratios of snowy owls in regular and irregular wintering grounds. And they've reported high varying proportions, okay? But the proportions of juvenile snowy owls have never been studied in relation to eruption intensity. So remember, if the breeding success hypothesis is correct, it would say that when eruptions happen, and the more intense they are, the more first year birds are gonna be in there. Hmm. 
Okay, so they used three data sets. They looked at Christmas bird count data from mm -hmm. an even longer period, 1991 to 2016. Oh. Okay, so 25 years. They also looked at, well, I'll hold on to the other two data sets. <laughs> so the first one, during winter, juvenile snowy owls born during the previous summer, so these guys are less than one year old, can be reliably separated from non-juveniles greater than one year old using distinctive plumage characteristics. Hmm. So I mentioned this in part one. Molting of the primary feathers, the primary flight feathers. So those, when the owl opens its wings, they almost look like their fingers, mm -hmm. but they're feathers. They're the ones more at the tip. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and heading in towards the, kind of the middle of the wing. Okay. Molting of the primary fe feathers occurs during the summer when individuals reach one year old. And even from a distance, the molted feathers can be differentiated from older ones. Compared with non-juveniles, so these are older birds, juvenile feathers, and I should say juveniles, typically less than a year old, juvenile feathers exhibit a mottled pattern between dark bands and a narrow or absent white fringe at the tip. Also, because melanin, the pigments in there, tend to fade after being exposed to the sun, any new feathers are gonna contrast sharply with the faded older feathers. And this makes the assessment highly reliable. Huh. So with a scope, really, really good binoculars, you can look at their wings and say, that's a juvenile bird, it's less than one year old. Those young feathers, they have that mottled pattern between the dark bands and the white fringe at the tip is narrow or it's not even there. So they could tell from a distance. The second data set, each year, again, in the same time period, 1981 to 2015, between November and April, live snowy owls, both juveniles and non, were trapped and banded in several areas of the species winter range in North America. So this included regular and irregular winter areas. They captured a total of 1,017 individuals. Hmm. And they used bow nets and balshachi traps to do that. What's a bow net? I think those are the nets that you set them in the ground and then you can hit a release and it flips oh. over. I've never seen one. I'd like to see it though. Oh, they use those at Braddock Bay in Rochester. Oh, really? So capture. that's a place I haven't been. Yeah. One of these days I'll have to pretend like I want to start banding <laughs> birds and I can go get trained there. So that's where I was trained and, and we got to go see their raptor operation. And they would huddle in a, uh, a little enclosure and they actually had um, house sparrows and pigeons that they would Tied. raise and it would be tethered out in the middle of the field. Yeah. Which I know sounds horrible. <laughs> okay. And then the third data set during two winters, 2013-14 and then the subsequent one from November to April, they obtained over 600 sets of high resolution photos. They would have one to six photos of individual snowy owls from birders across Northeast North America. So again, they could use those photos to determine is this a juvenile or non-juvenile. What they found was while the proportion of juveniles did vary a lot across years and regions, the results did show there was a high proportion of wintering snowy owls across North America, and especially in the Northeast, that were made up of juvenile birds, and that this proportion tended to increase in eruptive years. <laughs> so that's consistent with the idea that winter eruptions of snowy owls are resulting from good breeding conditions on the Arctic tundra, rather than a lack of food. The overall proportion of juvenile individuals was lower in regular wintering areas, most probably because those sites attract a certain number of returning adults every year. <laughs> so areas where you could pretty reliably see snowy owls each year, those are older ones. They know those sites are there. So a, 
all these juveniles coming down, if they try to go to those sites, they're already occupied by older owls. So some of these adults do have some type of like site fidelity. Yes, of, it does seem so. Hmm. Not as strong as say in other species. Yeah. And it may not be individual. It may be just known right. within the population that they come down into that area. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's like you have a home in Florida or a bunch of people have homes in Florida, but yeah. you like the other person's home a little bit. So, so one year you go around. there. Yeah. Yeah. You show up, sorry, good. dude, I, your house looks pretty good. I so. got here first. Yeah. <laughs> so the proportion of juvenile individuals observed in both irregular and irregular wintering areas contrasted sharply with what would be expected by the lack of food hypothesis. And this is because adults would compose the bulk of the overall population if the lack of food hypothesis held up, right? Yeah. It'd be mostly adults because if there's not enough food, the breeding is not going to be successful. You're not going to have a lot of first year birds. Yeah. Right. So we would expect a very low proportion of, of juveniles, if any, among those wintering birds, regardless of the eruption intensity. So to wrap this up, the breeding success hypothesis seems to be the main driver of snowy owl eruptions. Now, what I do want to say though, is this is similar to invasions of the common red pole and the black-capped chickadee. So the breeding success hypothesis, other research kind of backs it up for those two species that the breeding success hypothesis is the reason for their eruptions as well. Hmm. It might also be in some literature referred to as the population density hypothesis. Now in contrast, the migration patterns of other seed eaters like the white-winged crossbill appear to be better explained by the seed crop failure hypothesis or the lack of food hypothesis. And the ones of boreal owl, northern hawk owl, and the great gray also seem to match up better with the lack of food hypothesis. Although there's several seed eaters and owls that feed on pulsed resources, and these things can fluctuate up to 100 fold from year, one year to the next in terms of the intensity, species within each of these groups, they seem to respond to the fluctuations in different ways. So, I want people to understand that the research that we did, it seems to say for snowy owls, it's the breeding success hypothesis that's driving these eruptions. For years, I taught people it was probably the lack of food hypothesis, because I think that was the dominant idea at the time. It, it was, yeah. yeah. So late 90s, early 2000s, we just didn't have the data. But you can't take that and blanket it across all species that erupt. So no one hypothesis can explain eruptive migrations even across species that specialize on the same type of food resources. So what about future work? Most of the, the articles I looked at that said future work needs to include more birds tracked by satellite telemetry to compare among aging classes. We need to do multi-year studies of migratory routes and then look at the seasonal dynamics, you know, the different seasons and how they're playing out across the seasons. We also need to look at the geographic origin of eruptive birds. Hmm not just where they're ending up on eruptions, but where are they coming from and the influence that winter habitat has on breeding success in the next season. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, like we usually find, we need more data. Yep. Right. <laughs> but right now it looks like it's the breeding success hypothesis. There's those years when the lemmings peak, there's a lot of snowy owls that are born. And as they head south, those young owls, they can't find a spot to set up shop for the winter, so they have to head further south to places they normally wouldn't go. And I don't know if you came across these studies, Bill, but another one to suggest that hypothesis is that when they were examining the individual owls that were arriving, 
if it was due to a food shortage, the theory was they would be in poor condition. They would be hungry or starving, and they realized that really was not the case. Right. That actually, is, so, so they weren't coming down here because they're starving. That's one thing I must have skipped it over in my notes because I did forget to mention that. Yeah, because yeah. if the lack of food hypothesis held true, they should be in a starving be, condition. Yeah. And they were fat and happy. Yeah, most of they're all fine. Yeah. 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 Now that more or less. That, that's a really that, <laughs> more or less. It's tough. It's yeah. tough out there. <laughs> so I mean, that, that's a really good prediction to bring up, though, because they're like, okay, if it's this model, we should expect this, right. like maybe starving conditions, or if it's this model, we should expect not starving conditions, mm-hmm. and it fit much better with the one. I mean, among other many other bits of evidence. But, sure. Yeah. Now, one some of the studies did point out that they said that hey, during these eruptions. Very often when owls are brought, snowy owls are brought into rehabbers or found, they might be in starving condition. But they said the fact that those owls were able to be found and approached or hit, that may be an underlying condition. It may not have to do with the eruption. Maybe okay. those owls were sick, were sick for another reason. Okay. Yeah. Who knows? But we can't just say, well, some of these owls we're finding are in a starving condition. The bulk of the ones that are erupting seem to be in good condition. Correct. So. All right, well, that's everything I have. All right, sounds good. (laughs) Time to do our wrap-up, right? Yeah. All right, we want to thank our new iTunes reviewers. Oh, cool. And I'm going to let Steve read that name. Oh, my God. (laughs) Hold on. Let me me just see if I can get it right. Oh, my God, it's so hard to do. (laughs) Million, billion, trillion. Okay, got it. We'd like to thank nine trillion... Eight hundred and seventy nine billion eight hundred and seventy nine million eight hundred and seventy thousand nine hundred and eighty seven. I also like to thank Brian H twenty five LK Chumar and the Heathen Gardener. Thanks for leaving those reviews, folks. And we also want to thank Nature Out Loud. This is a musical group. They do nature theme songs for kids. They liked our podcast, got in touch with us, and they actually sent us um, a CD of music that I've shared with some of the teachers at my school. They sent you a CD of music. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to listen to. This is my first time hearing about it. You're going to listen to kids' nature music? I can share it with you. Yeah, I need it. <laughs> they also sent us a bag. Uh, it seems they do great stuff. They have a YouTube channel, and uh, we'll put some uh, links into the episode notes, although I did share stuff through our social media account, too. Oh, yeah. Um, they're doing good work. We also want to thank Awkward Botany. They did a great post on their blog, two posts actually, two parts about the best plant podcasts Wait, out there. Hold on a second. How <laughs> legitimate is this list? Because I think I actually clicked on it. Was In Defense of Plants not on the list? They were, because remember, it's two parts. You might have just seen oh, one part. It must have been, yeah, because yeah. I was like, it's literally called In Defense of Plants, <laughs> and I didn't see it on the list. <laughs> and we also want to let people know that we finally got our Teespring store oh, yeah. up and running. So if you wanted to get some Field Guides t-shirts, sweatshirts, we're going to have more stuff. Mm-hmm. You can check it out if you go to Teespring and type in the Field Guides, we should come up. Yeah, and it came out pretty good. So yeah. Bill and, and I bought a few. We so. did, yeah. And we, you have that linked on our website as well. We also want to thank our new patrons this month. We want to thank Andy Turco, Eric Gentry, MD, Helen Alexander, Sarah Scharf for upping her donation. Thank you, Sarah. Judy Fennerty. And Andy Turco, I just thought it was interesting when he sent us a message when he became a patron that he liked that we supported BLM and that also that we're anti-homeopathy. <laughs> he said that we shouldn't apologize 
for dissing homeopathy. He said, people have to take a stand on anti-science issues. And yeah. I appreciated him and, saying that. And Andy and I, I think, had we had a short uh, but nice email back and forth. So. <laughs> I like that you added but yeah. nice. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> right, because short almost comes off wrong, though. But it was so funny when you were reading those names. I was like, Eric Gentry, MD. I'm like, wow, we got a doctor. Oh, <laughs> like those are two separate people. Two separate people. Eric could be a doctor, though. I have no idea. <laughs> So, folks, if you do want to support the podcast, you can become a patron. You can check out our Patreon page. Just look up the field guides. If you'd rather make a one-time donation, you can do that through our Donate Now PayPal button on our website. And while we do appreciate every single patron each episode, we'd like to take a moment and thank our top patrons. So, Steve, go ahead. All right. So, thank you very much, Alyssa, Eric, the Hebranks, Ken, Diane, Daniel. Now hang on, because we actually have that Daniel right here. <laughs> oh, we can thank him the first time we're able to thank someone in person. Bill so thank thanks you. me at the Earth Spirit 5K a few years ago. Well, thanks, Dan. Oh, yeah, thank welcome. you. Uh, so we also want to thank Rachel, Orange Julian, Jessica, Rich, Sean, Rob, we named the dog Indy, John, Esther, Jeff, Goose, Bruce, Kazzy's, J. Jean, Kelly, Bob, Doodle Dude 82, Elizabeth, Renz, Lauren Smith, Jane, Ben, and Andrew. Our list Thank is getting you. longer. Yeah, I know. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so very much, folks. We appreciate all your support, and it really does help us do better things. And if you can't afford to financially support the podcast, we do really appreciate leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other podcatcher you use. It helps get our podcast out in front of other people that might be interested. Yeah, and we could be on more... Uh, best botany podcast that's right that's right (laughs) and if you want to get in touch with us and make any suggestions have episode suggestions you can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com and don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter or instagram and you can always check out our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com oh and this is something i wasn't going to say but speaking of matt from in defense of plants that i brought up before he and i along with our friend jason Oh, got? raptor. There's a hawk. I got distracted. Red That's tail. Okay. Red, red tail hawk's just <laughs> flying by. Yeah. Red tail. <laughs> so Matt from Indefensive Plants and I, and also my friend Jason, we did like a short video series years and years ago uh, where we actually found a snowy owl at the Niagara Airport. And we'll leave a link to that. It's kind of a fun episode. We, I don't know if we trespass on airport <laughs> property but uh but it's a fun one and uh we'll just share a link to that as well all right check that out and we do want to say thank you so much to dan for being part of our episode today oh you're welcome it was a lot of fun to be here and learn from you guys in person not just not yeah. just hearing you so so we'll uh put up links to dan's photography on the episode notes so please check him out he was kind enough to bring steve and i uh some beautiful photos of snowy owls oh yeah that we'll be hanging up 100 percent putting that up yeah so folks Two last things. Number one, our friend Matt from Indefensive Plants Podcast. He has a book coming out. Mm. You can order it on Amazon or your local bookseller. It's just called Indefensive Plants. We are so happy for him and proud of him too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and with that, we brought Matt up like three times now. I, <laughs> I think for the next six months, we can't talk about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to bleep his name out of the next episode if he ends up in it. All right, folks. Last thing, just make sure... Get those kids outside. Let them get muddy. Let them get dirty. Let them get snowy. Snowy. (laughs) That's right. And get yourselves outside too, folks. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. All right. See you guys. Happening, or it might just be a a wintering site. (laughs)
<laughs> Excuse me. All right, we should leave that in. It's never happened before, has it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>